0: Tonight, I I just really felt called to begin by um, appreciating and acknowledging Anagarika Menindra, who I know you've seen on the board and those photos of him that he died this week. Um, and, and not just him, but it, it's, it's led me into actually just a series of reflections. This talk is, I hope it's coherent, but anyway, it's a series of reflections that grew out of appreciating uh, and honoring Manindraji. And uh, I just want to talk about him a little, and especially in appreciating. He wasn't particularly my teacher. Um, I knew him, of course, because he came to IMS and to the state several times, taught here over quite some weeks each time. But more appreciating both his being, but the sense, the power, and the support for each of us, of all of our teachers, of the sense of lineage uh, and really acknowledging and consciously bringing in to our mind stream in difficult times a sense of consciously calling on uh, our teachers, both living and dead, the teachers of our teachers, and the whole sense of uh, the interrelatedness that comes from this. This is sort of what my reflections about Manindraji brought me to. Uh, just to say a little bit about him, I know some of you had quite a personal connection. Some of you may have no clue who this guy is. And suddenly there's this picture you know, of our beloved teacher who died. And it's like, what? But I think it might. One never knows, really. But it might be accurate to say that none of IMS or any of these um, centers, Spirit Rock, either would be here. Uh, if Menindriji hadn't played such a vital part, being he was Joseph's first teacher and for many years his main teacher, also Sharon Salzberg, and he was the teacher of Deepama, who was then again teachers of many of us. Um, and I'll just you'll see the interrelationships. The other night, uh, Joseph just made a few comments about Manindra's life to the yogis at the three-month retreat. So I'll just share those to give you a sense of where it begins and how all the threads connect in a very powerful way. Um, Ji is an Indian man. The last name was Barua, which is the clan, sort of like the, the leftover Buddhists in India. In, uh, Eastern India are of the Barua clan. So, even though the Buddha uh, came from India and taught in India, there's not that much Buddhism left in India. So, Manindra came from a Buddhist clan, and Joseph was saying that in his younger days, his job was the caretaker of the Mahabodhi temple in Bodhgaya. And Bodhgaya is, you know, maybe one of the most holy sites of Buddhists, the place where the Buddha was enlightened under the Bodhi tree. And there's a descendant of the original Bodhi tree and quite a, a beautiful temple and grounds around in the small village of Bodhgaya. And Joseph said Menindraji was the caretaker there. But at some point, he realized that even though he was at this site of you know the most kind of... Uh, holy Buddhist site, he hadn't really done his homework, that which all of you are doing here. He hadn't really practiced deeply. And so he decided uh, that's what he wanted to do. And since, again, Buddhist teaching wasn't so available in India, he went to Burma. And he practiced with Mahasi Sayadaw, in the center of Mahasi Sayadaw, which is, again, another link because, a teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, who was here this summer, is one of the main students of Mahasi Sayadaw. And that's also where Deepa Ma practiced. Anyway, Meningerji practiced uh, for some years there. And also, after he had you know, finished his years of practice, he got very interested in wanting to know for himself what the Buddha said. And then he devoted quite some years to study, so that he became quite a scholar, and this is indicative of his personality. Um, quite a unique personality. Very meta filled. Just really a kind meta heart. The kind of person who just, you know, if he would meet you, no distinction, really happy to meet you, wanting to know all about you, just overwhelming you with friendliness. Um, but uh, the phrase that Joseph really loved, he says, all these years about Manindra's teaching, was that he would always say, just simple and easy. Make it gets simple and easy. Which if you know Joseph very well, you can see why he would like that. Simple and easy, rather than, you know, really, really work hard, which is more Sayadaw Pandita, you know, die there. It's good if you die sitting. Ranindra was more simple and easy. But that meta attitude combined with a a fierce interest and an incredible tenacity that um, would manifest in the personality, both in a really helpful way, that once he's going to practice, he's going to practice to the end. Once he's going to study, he's going to study to the end. It also manifested personally. I was talking to Larry Rosenberg the other night. And the site, he says, well, one thing you learn about Manindraji is you don't want to go to a museum with him. (laughs) Because that insatiable curiosity and tenacity means you've got to look at every single thing in that museum and don't think you're going to get out of there until it closes. It's really unbelievable. Or shopping or anything else. But it's a quality, you know, just of such interest in life such engagement in what's going on that when we bring that uh, loving, interested quality to our practice, it really becomes alive and nothing becomes uh, problematic or something we need to get rid of. It's all just juice for our practice, which is where I'm going to go later in this talk. But so Menindra brought this metta spirit, this tenacity, this sense though of, of absolute trust in the Dharma, simple and easy, and his sense of just being who he was, you know, with all his personality quirks, that then gives one of, a student or anyone who meets him the sense that, well, it's really okay to just be who I am. So the practice stops becoming a way to somehow make yourself different or better or to try to make yourself like your teacher. Because, for example, Manindraji was really an inspiring teacher, but I, I didn't really want to be like him you with know, my personality, if you know what I mean. Like, he was great. He was who he was. Gives me permission to be who I am, but it doesn't make you want to, yes, I should be like him. And that's an enormous freedom. So just on the personal level, The fact that he was such an important uh, teacher for Joseph and then for many, many other uh, yogis over the years, even up to the present day, through coming to uh, the States, to Hawaii, and also uh, students going and being with him for two weeks or a month, even up until this last year there's a way that without him having been really a particularly close teacher of mine at all the threads of his teaching are uh, indelibly mingled in the lineage of my practice he is just by dint of all the interconnection you know one of the elders one of the inspirations and just to reflect on him, to call him to mind with a sense of gratitude, a sense of metta, took me, when I was doing this, you know, the night that he died and since, um, back into how really enlivening it is, I feel, in our practice to consciously take some time each of us, to reflect on, to bring up the sense of appreciation, of gratitude, or just simply acknowledging each of our teachers through the whole train, over all the years of our practice, our teachers, our teachers' teachers, and how it, it all spreads out, not just because of a should, but because it can bring a real energizing support, a, a real motivation to our practice. I know in a long retreat like this, and I, I get the sense from talking you know, with all of you that at different times, of course, we, each of you, each of us, is really deeply involved in your own process, which is totally appropriate. We don't want you to be involved in anyone else's process and totally, completely in your own. And the longer you're here, in a way, the more your meditative process really becomes the whole world, doesn't it? I mean, the longer you're here, other events just start to fade, and the little events in your mind and the little events in the day become huge, you know? Like some something really going wrong at, at mealtime, or getting your job changed, you know, or something really. Uh, there's a group of Musan came here today with a group of Korean monks, and it's like, oh my God, something's happening here. What you know? It's almost equivalent to the war in Iraq or something in terms of you know intensity of something new going on. Um, so we are deeply involved in our process, but sometimes, especially. Uh, when it's difficult, it can also come to feel as if uh, one is really all alone in it. Having to shoulder the burden, figure it all out for yourself, you know, it really can, can be quite wearing. One can feel a bit isolated or alienated, or even more than a little bit isolated or alienated, kind of closed in on oneself. Especially, of course, when it's difficult. I mean, when it's really great and we're filled with bliss, that's usually not the time we need to look for inspiration. Um, Remember that one definition of Dhamma is that which supports, that which upholds. And to remember that There is no possible way that any one of us is here alone, closed in. It's impossible. None of us, no matter how you got here, came here just alone. The interconnectedness with the teachers and our teachers' teachers and our friends' teachers and the lineage is you can't sort out that web. And whenever you start to feel closed in or alone, to really sit down and consciously reflect. You may feel the dhamma itself, that sense of just trust in the natural unfolding. That may be accessible to you. Often in times of difficulty, I know for me it's not, because that's exactly why it's difficult. We've lost that sense of trust in the natural unfolding. Whatever's happening is proof that the natural unfolding stopped naturally unfolding and it's stuck here, you know, and we need some help to get out of it. That's when, really, I found in the last few years to sit and really reflect, bring up a sense of your teachers, whether it's in a little bit in the morning, whether if you're just, you're just really stuck to go to your room or out in the woods. And just bring to mind who your teachers are, have been, whether you get an image of them, whether you get a felt sense. And just without being artificial about it, just hold the potential in your heart for gratitude, for appreciation. And what I found happens for me is I'll start by thinking of one particular teacher. And, another. and then all of a sudden, these other teachers and beings start popping up in my awareness that I didn't think of for years, or I thought, oh yeah, that was a really valuable, that has been such an important person in my life, you know? And not to, you don't go into judgment, oh, and I have an expressed appreciation, yada, yada. You really just let in that feeling of the interconnectedness, the upholding, the support of the Dhamma and it's not personal you know it's a sense of it doesn't stop with you these people did all this to support me it's seeing that each of us is simply another link in the unending chain of the lineage of the buddha dharma of the buddha sasana in this world the fact that each of us is sitting here now we're the living representatives that are continuing to keep the Buddha Dhamma alive in this world. We're just part of this interconnected flow. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. Even if what's going on inside your mind just seems like a bunch of garbage, you're still sitting here, bringing in awareness and intentionality. And that is key to keeping the Dhamma alive. You know, none of us is here in isolation. You know, there's a saying, I don't know if it's true, but I like it, that if even for one moment in this world there were no one for one moment actively practicing the Buddha Dharma, then the Buddha Dharma would die out. I mean, the truth wouldn't die out. The way things are is the way things are, of course. But the, the Buddha Dharma, the history of the Buddhist teachings, and the The knowing and ability to pass it on through our practice, that would die out. So it's a noble and important thing that each of us is doing here with our practice. And by consciously honoring your elders, your teachers, it strengthens that motivation. In times of contraction, doubt, and difficulty, really to bring that up, and seeing the interconnectedness now between the Asian teachers and how Vipassana has been brought to the West in the way it is in these centers, just talking about, you know, IMS, the Forest Refuge, the Study Center, Spirit Rock, just this little, that little piece of Buddha Dharma, of the American Vipassana scene. And how now the interrelationships between India and uh, Manindra going to Burma to practice and then coming back to India and teaching Westerners and they coming here. And then from the Mahasi Center, Mahasi Sayadaw coming here, Sayadaw Upandita coming here. Many, many, you know, uh, Westerners, Americans, Europeans, Australians going back to Thailand. I was a nun in Thailand for a year, back to Burma to practice. And now when I go back to Burma to practice or to teach, I really begin to feel much more this sense that the flow of Dharma is going both ways. You know, that before, as always, the, we would go to Asia, the Asians would teach us, and we still go there to practice because really there's some great masters. But also, for example, just today I got a letter from a, um, a Malaysian monk who teaches in uh, Burma at Chamayekta, one of the uh, retreat centers of Sayada Ujanaka, who's going to be here next summer. And um, he was asking me when I go to Burma this winter, would I bring some of the Western publications, some back issues of the BCBS Insight Journal, some back issues of Inquiring Mind, some of tanisaro Bhikkhu's publications, because, you know, to bring in some, he said, to bring in some other voices, some fresh voices into the Buddha Dharma there. And I just think it's lovely the way the cross pollination is really strengthening the Dhamma on all sides of the world, you know, and we're we're all part of that. The living Dharma, you know, it's not just some dead teachings at all. So the sense that when it's difficult or dry or you're feeling really alone or dead, to consciously reflect on, to bring in inspiration, either of particular teachers, or if even that isn't quite accessible for you, the reflections the Buddha often used for inspiration, which is really on the the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. But I want to make it really clear that the reflections, the generation of appreciation and gratitude, of connectedness, of interrelatedness, it's not about um, using these reflections as a kind of comparison. Well, that teacher or that being, look how far along they are. And look at what a little you know, ant I am next to them. So ugh, it's not that. It's not to create some sense of division at all, not a sense of comparison, but rather as a catalyst to motivation, to commitment. To It, it gives us access to the inspiration and the energy to keep going. And by keep going, I don't mean to keep going Towards some specific experience that we're looking for. You know, keep going until I get, you know, my perfect idea of samadhi or whatever it is. But keep going to have the faith, to have the trust, to absolutely surrender yet again into the Dhamma just as it's arising in this moment. So, to, to call on our, our teachers, our ancestors in the Dhamma, or the Dhamma itself, or the enlightened mind stream, which is one definition of sangha. Not to compare ourselves, but to give us the, the courage to absolutely surrender into the unknown in this moment, to just surrender with full and total presence into what's ever ha- happening letting go of all our preconceptions. This is the way Ayakema describes it. The real earnest commitment is a matter of giving up our own viewpoints, of letting go of our opinions and our preconceived ideas. Faith and confidence is based on the opening of the heart to whatever is arising in this moment. Faith and confidence means we both understand the meaning of the teaching, and also we love it. And that really, those two ways of speaking really touch, touch, somehow come together in my experience. I know we all have different relationships to words. But to understand the meaning, but also to love it, the teaching the Dhamma, the truth of this moment. Without both of those, there's not really a total surrender. There's not really an absolute commitment. Just in the moment. Just for this moment. And love of it can really be translated into a love of awareness. Just a love of awareness itself. And when we're just appreciating, if you don't like the word love, you could use the word trust or refuge. is taking refuge in the awareness itself. And then whatever arises in our experience, whatever sensation or mood or sound or thing we hate or memory or whatever, it's just what it is. But rather than looking to experience as our refuge, as a place of safety, or rather than looking to experience for confirmation, oh, my practice is going OK now because this is happening. You know? Or we look to experience for denigration. My practice is really bad now because this is happening, which usually then moves to I'm really worthless now because this is happening. Or, oh, I'm not as bad as I thought. Maybe I'm really okay because this is happening. All of that is still subtly or not so subtly looking to trying to take experience for our refuge. And it never works. It never works. But rather than fighting experience or needing to shift it at all, we just turn to the knowing itself the awareness itself, ah, yeah. And not to hold on to it, but just to love it, to feel so happy is not the right word. At home, maybe, with awareness, that whatever experience may be arising is really OK, because it, that experience can be our doorway back into awareness. You know, like I was just walking down the road, um, just taking a walk this evening, and it, it just kind of happened naturally. I just started feeling my footsteps, and without thinking about it, the sensation of the, each step just opened up into awareness of that. And nothing changed, but in that sense of the knowing, the awareness being the refuge those words are already too much, but just in that sense of awareness being. The container, maybe put it that way. The sensations of the feet are just the same. The sense of me, thoughts would come and go. Oh, you know, some mood would come up, or some thought about what'll I say tonight would come up, and then there'd be a sense of Carol and liking or disliking, and then oh yeah, awareness, the container. And immediately in all of that, there's a sense of complete ease—not ease for me. Just ease, the ease of not needing to make anything out of anything. It's just what it is. And not trying to get to the place where it's just what it is either. right? It just happens quite naturally when we get more interested, more at home in the simplicity of awareness and less fascinated with defining ourselves by whatever the particular experience is. And this is really the place of surrender, the place of faith, the place of trust. Not trust in any particular experience, but that with awareness as a refuge, as a touchstone, as a container, and the trust that awareness is always accessible, awareness doesn't care what it's aware of, you could put it that way. It's not like awareness is purer and cleaner when it's aware of really, really subtle sensations of breath. And it's not as if awareness is somehow sullied or dirtied when it has to be aware of these gross, you know, hard breathings, you know, and that's like it wrecks the awareness. No. I mean, we're so crazy, we're really so crazy that we think it makes any difference. So but we've just been taught to get really, just to define ourselves, to define the world by experience. And a lot of what practice is, is just helping us shift, foreground, background shift, shift the frame of reference. And the reason I'm I'm talking about, using gratitude, tuning into our teachers, our lineage, as a, a support, as an inspiration, is because personally, and this is just personal in my experience, I find when I do that, when I just allow my mind stream to open up in a sense of gratitude and love, that it, it begins personally, like, wow, really appreciating this teacher and what they've done for me and their particular qualities. But by just resting in that gratitude, it opens up beyond the personal, and it moves into that space of trust, into that space of surrender, into awareness. There's, oh, here it is, a line from Tulku Urgen Rinpoche, where he says, he's talking about devotion, really, and he says, in the moment of love, the empty nature dawns nakedly. And I found that to be true so often in the moment of pure love, kind of surrender, devotion, not an attached love, but just love, which can be meta, gratitude, appreciation. In that moment of love, just the emptiness, there's no me and other, there's no distinctions. That dawns nakedly. The sense of awareness, the ability to kind of rest in it, to trust it. When we are you know, in a balanced place where it's possible to uh, sense, appreciate, trust, surrender to the awareness as container, those are the times that we see it's possible to practice with enormous energy, really courageous effort, so wholeheartedly, but with no gaining idea. Which is, you know, uh, like a paradox to us. I think most of us, we know how to work really hard. We know how to try really hard, but mostly we only know how to do that with a sense of gaining. When we hear something, you know, the famous line of Milarepa's, which is uh, to have no thought for enlightenment and practice your whole life, we think, <laughs> what? <laughs> that sounds really demoralizing, you know? I don't want to practice my whole life unless there's some promise of something at the end of it. But really, the sense of surrender, of trust, allows for this enormous uh, moment-to-moment present effort with no thought of gaining. Because of the intention is coming from, and there's a line from Carlos Castaneda, you know, he's talking about sorcerers, And he's saying, for sorcerers, discipline is the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because sorcerers are strong and tough, but because they are filled with awe. And to me, that's the flavor of this moment-by-moment surrender awareness, surrendered to the Dhamma as it's manifesting in this moment. It's a sense of awe, of reverence, I could say, for whatever's arising. Not so much for the thing in itself, but because it's, again, what can take us back into, if we've lost it, the sense of peace, of present moment awareness. There's a Burmese saying to Treat each person you meet as an object of reverence. Which in itself is really lovely, you know. If we would just meet each other like that, what a world this would be. But I use that as a way of how to bring that quality of awe into my mindfulness or my metta practice to meet each arising experience, to treat each arising experience as an object of reverence, as an experience of reverence. Not the reverence of separation, oh, it's so much better, but the reverence of awe, of complete openness, meeting it without any preconceived ideas without any sense of distinction what it means about me this is good this is bad but simply total presence for that experience just as it is without any movement of mind around it this is really both the great meta attitude and manindra's statement of simple and easy keep it simple and easy one of his great lines that's been repeated like 10 million times. So I feel like I've heard him say it a million times. I don't even know if I ever heard him say it, but I've heard it so much. But he says, just sit and walk and the whole of the Dhamma will unfold by itself. That's really the sense of total commitment and total trust. The commitment is you sit and walk moment by moment we open into whatever's arising with that awe, with that reverence. And the trust is we don't need to fix or make anything different. And the whole of the Dhamma will unfold by itself. Everything we need to see and understand and love for liberation without our messing around with it without our deciding what it is we need to see to be free, and then trying to guide our practice in that direction. Which I don't know if you've noticed that that doesn't work. But just in case, this is a line about, believe it or not, sort of about simple and easy, from the Venerable Ajahn Mun. (laughs) Now, most of you may not, I see Sean knows. Venerable Ajahn Mun is not one who you associate with simple and easy. He's sort of the father of um, uh, the Thai forest monk tradition, like Ajahn Chah, Mahabua. He, as far as we can tell, his idea of practice was go out in the woods, in the forest, this was back in the last century, where there really were tigers, and just go out and sit in the forest. And if tigers come, you just be with the fear. And if the tigers eat you, well, that's OK. You were practice. I mean, really, he was tough. So just, just to give you a sense of this is from Ajahn Mun, though. Does the rise and fall of the river accord with the truth? You can't remedy the changing of sankaras. Fashioned by kama, they're out to spite no one. If you grasp hold of them to push them this way and that, your mind has to become defiled and wrong, basically suffering. Don't think of resisting the natural way of all things. Let good and evil follow their own affairs. We simply free ourselves. You get a sense of that? That could be seen as simple and easy. It's really the same as sit and walk, surrender into this moment with totality of presence, with reverence, with awe, and the whole of the Dhamma will reveal itself, just as it needs to. Of course, it is hard. It requires enormous trust especially when the things that are happening are difficult. You know, it, it's natural, the trust, when our effort and attention is balanced, when we're just connected without striving or aversion, then the refuge in awareness is quite natural. The sense of that reverence or the meta feeling that's part of mindfulness is quite natural. Like when I was walking today, and it's just that sense of awareness for container. It's not like, oh, incredible meta, but it's just this sense of, of uh, a sweetness, uh, an ease with whatever arises. But what that means practically is that when that changes, when what seems okay or the way it's going the way you think it should go changes. Or you lose that sense of natural awareness. Or you get caught in blame or judgment. Or strong, difficult emotions arise. Then to find the, the willingness to surrender to this, too, when there's no way you can say it feels good, To surrender to this, too, not as something to live through until finally the real Dhamma comes back again and I can start practicing, but this, too, as an aspect of Dhamma revealing itself in this moment, that it couldn't be otherwise, that this, too, no matter how contracted and convoluted and striving and selfing it seems, this, too, is simply another arising appearance that can be known in the container of awareness. It's really hard to trust this. It's really difficult to keep coming back to a contentment for awareness because we're so deeply ingrained and conditioned to lean into the future, right? to look for some result some achievement, some gross or subtle way that really practice or experience is confirming myself. I mean, mostly, I see for me, if I think about enlightenment or anything, usually it's about me being enlightened, right? It's not about the sense of me going away and just walking down the road in the simple and easy steps and nothing. It's somehow me being free from suffering. Me being filled with compassion, me floating on a cloud, whatever it is, you know, some way we're leaning into. This is from Ajahn Chah. The worldly way is to do things for a reason, to get some return. But in Buddhism, we learn to do things without any gaining idea. The regular world has to understand things in terms of cause and effect. But the Buddha teaches us to go above and beyond even cause and effect. His wisdom was to go above birth and beyond death, to go above happiness and beyond suffering. Think about it. That means there's nowhere to stay. We people live in a home to leave home and go where there is no home, we don't know how to do it, because we've always lived with becoming, with clinging. If we can't cling, we don't know what to do. So most people don't want to go to nirvana, because there's nothing there, nothing at all. Look at the roof and the floor here. The upper extreme is the roof. That's a becoming. The lower extreme is the floor, and that's another becoming. But in the empty space between the floor and the roof, there's nowhere to stand. One could stand on the roof or stand on the floor, but not on that empty space. Where there is no becoming, that's where there's emptiness. And to put it bluntly, we say that nibbana is this emptiness. People hear this, and they back up a bit. They don't want to go. They're afraid they won't see their children or their relatives. There's something to that, huh? Just kind of, I like that line, you know, if we're not clinging, we don't know what to do. And it gets more and more subtle. And that's where the striving in practice begins to come in. That sense of, If we leave home and there's nothing there, you know, we're lost. And when I even talk about um, awareness as a container, as a refuge, even that's almost, it's too much. It tries to make it something solid. Again, the mind tries, awareness is like this, and it always feels like this, and I can take refuge in it. So just be aware of that. Just know there's a the tendency to bring that I in somewhere to land. Just notice that. And as soon as you notice that, ah, awareness again can even include that. That's why Ajahn Sumedho speaks about awareness. as the point that includes. There's nothing in our experience that then awareness can't notice. But as soon as we try to make awareness a thing, and now it feels like this, and it's my home already too much. But then you become aware of that. So in that sense of just awareness, awareness, enormous effort can be put out. As soon as we're still putting out enormous effort and we think just to meet this moment, meet this moment, meet this moment, but even the subtlest clinging that comes in, trying to subtly change this moment into something else so the next moment can be a little better. Or being with this moment in order to have such and such happen. Or be with this moment and there's a very subtle judgment. I have to be with this moment because it's not okay and if I'm with it, it'll change. Whatever. Sometimes it's gross, but it can be very subtle. If you find you feel that your effort is really balanced, but somehow you feel you're hitting the wall. Some frustration, some you know, really tightness, or just you know when you're hitting the wall. And you can't tell what it is. And the tendency then is to think, try harder. I'm not being here enough. I need to push harder. I need to push through this. And you can really tell that you're there trying. It's not one of these. Try harder and you've been out half the day, you know lying under the, looking at the leaves and dreaming about uh, your holiday next month, then I would say, "Yeah, try harder. But when you're really noticing what's happening and it's getting more and more frustrated, more and more hitting the wall, rather than thinking, "I gotta try harder." Just stop a minute. Let your attention get really big and see if you notice what the mind is leaning into, wanting, comparing against, um, positively or negatively. The striving is always about expectation or wanting something else. And just noticing that is sometimes enough. Ah, striving. It's like this. In that moment, awareness has again become the refuge. Sometimes, of course, that's not enough. So again, this, all of these are kind of sparked by my feelings for Manindra. Um, that's when to bring in a conscious metta attitude in our mindfulness. Metta attitude is always an aspect of mindfulness. But when we're in that striving, we're kind of losing the metta attitude. We think it's mindfulness because we know it's happening. But it doesn't have the metta part of it, which is total presence and total accepting, making no distinctions. Uh, So sometimes we need to consciously tune into that. So the metta attitude that's really vital in both metta and mindfulness practice, is it's not about looking for a particular emotion. That we call metta. It's not that if I have a metta attitude in mindfulness, I'm going to meet this knee pain or this emotion with a sense of, oh yes, welcome, knee pain, you know, I'm happy to meet you face to face. It's not that there's a feeling of bliss and all encompassing inclusiveness, you know, none of that. Metta attitude is simply connecting face to face the attention. Meeting what's ever arising in this moment, clear seeing, friendly acceptance without adding anything extra. That means if it's something pleasant and we like, we don't add anything about what it means or how to get more of it or holding on to it. It's just ah, oh, pleasant mental state. It's like this. It also means when something difficult is happening. It doesn't add anything extra around it, either. Just, oh, witnessing the unpleasant, just as it is, without adding anything extra. That's also metta. Ajahn Semedo is one of my favorite um, definitions of what metta is with the difficult. I think here it is. Metta does not necessarily mean liking anything at all. It means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside oneself. Just not dwelling on the unpleasantness, it doesn't mean not seeing it, but not dwelling on it. Now, with metta, one is not blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead, one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, in a thing in a person or in oneself without creating anything around it. That's all. It sounds so simple. I find it really profound to witness by surrendering and total attention the unpleasantness in a situation in oneself without creating anything around it. It just arises in the space of awareness. And then in the next moment, maybe it arises again. And it's the same freshness of meeting and innocence. So that each moment is a new quality of freshness in the face-to-face meeting of what's happening without creating anything around it. I've noticed in myself. It was actually highlighted in metta practice, but it's also true for me in Vipassana practice. When I'm tuning into this sense of just meeting pleasantness or unpleasantness with metta, clear seeing, simple total connection, nothing extra, how much the habit of my mind is to constantly make distinctions in experience. This is good, this is bad. This is pleasant, therefore it means this, and it's, it's desirable and we want more of it. This is unpleasant, it means my practice is going poorly and I should change it and make this happen. This, start comparing it to how it was in the past, comparing it to what I've heard in instructions and how I think it should be in the future. Um, some sense of assessing. What does it mean about me? Where does this place me in the progress of insight? How far am I getting in my meta you know, practice? Or is this a threat? What does this mean in terms of my long-term happiness? You know, anybody coming towards me. On a meta retreat, I noticed this. it kind of blew me away. I was pretty focused and I would notice anyone just coming into the field of vision, there was an the immediate sense of Unpleasant, they're a threat, you know, something I didn't like. Pleasant, a subtle wanting, you know, to be seen and noticed. Neutral hardly came into it, but if there was neutral, it was just kind of like eh, dismissive, you know, or nothing. And just to see the mind in such a habit of doing that, all of which were in the way of just simple connection and clear seeing. Clear seeing of what's so isn't possible, when the mind, when I'm identified with those distinctions, those exclusions. So, meta mindfulness, does none of that. Just clear, connected awareness that allows for clear recognition. Just this moment. Just this moment. Just this moment. And when we're not, you know, quite able to tune into the sense of awareness as a refuge, sometimes we can consciously bring in this sense of meta feeling of not creating extra, just pure connection and that can take us back into the surrender into awareness. And we begin to see in this the particular aspects of our experience that really catch us. The ones where we do really get sucked in and start to spin. I've noticed for myself and in talking to people, one very uh, huge area in this way is even when practice is really going along very strongly, that if something can happen in all different kinds of things, internally, externally, that triggers some of our really difficult, yucky, emotional patterns. We all know which ones are our particular, difficult, yucky emotional patterns, but we all have them. You know, and it can be fear, it could be pride, it could be uh, despair, it could be self-judgment, it could be some kind of memories and remorse, it could be you know, the whole psychological pattern of how I've lived my life and seeing how unskillful that's been. Sometimes they switch around but a particular one that really catches us, to see first how strong that is and how quickly it solidifies a whole sense of self and other, how quickly it brings up a sense of discrimination and wanting to fix, but that it also can just be seen as another arising experience in awareness. This is from Payment Children. She's saying, when strong emotions come up, we forget what we've learned through meditation and know to be true. Not just we've learned it intellectually, we know it to be true. But in that moment, we totally forget it. When really strong emotion comes up, all the beliefs that we've held on to seem kind of pitiful by comparison, because emotions are so much more powerful. So what was an enormous open space of awareness becomes a forest fire, a world war, a volcano erupting, a tidal wave. When we're identified with emotions, we try to use them. In their essence, emotions are simply part of the energy of being alive. But instead of letting them be, we take them and we try to use them to regain our ground. Just that ground Ajahn Chah is talking about that there isn't any of. We use the emotions to try to regain that ground. We use them to try to deny that, in fact, no one has ever known or will ever know what's happening. We use them to try to make everything secure and predictable and real again, to fool ourselves about what's really true. We could just sit with the emotional energy and let it pass. There's no particular need to spread blame and self-justification. But instead, we throw kerosene on the emotion so it will feel more real. And I would say so that we'll feel more real. But again, and here's the movement into the meta attitude, we don't have to consider even this process an obstacle or a problem. If we can look at it and see the wildness of emotion We can not only begin to befriend and soften towards ourselves and towards the emotion, but we naturally begin to befriend all human beings and indeed all living beings. By becoming aware of how we do this silly thing again and again, because we don't want to dwell in the uncertainty and awkwardness and pain of not knowing, We begin to develop true compassion for ourselves and everyone else, because we see what happens and how we react when things fall apart. That awareness is what turns the sword into a flower. That awareness is how what is seemingly ugly and problematic and unwanted actually becomes our teacher. That's really a perfect the explanation of how no matter what's going on the awareness of it brings us out of our fear of confusion and our need to consolidate and our self-hatred and our judgment into a willingness to just die into not knowing. To surrender into as she says we don't know and we'll never know. And instead of practicing to know, we start just loving those moments when we let go to the extent that we don't know and we're really happy not to know. It's really such a a relief in those moments that we put down the burden of thinking we're going to understand. When we put down the burden of holding on to all the opinions and views we have about ourselves or what is true, or what is the dharma, or what is right practice, or what this knee pain means, or what should be happening. When we put down knowing anything and just die into the forest fire of fear, or pounding vibrations in the head that we hate because it means x, y, and z, and this is what's going to happen, and once again, oh, yeah, pounding vibrations mean, who knows? They mean nothing. They're just arising in this moment, only for this moment. But I can't be with them forever. It's not going to be bare who knows forever. We really never know what's going to happen in the next moment. We really don't. We, you know, pretty much assume the next breath will come and we'll all be here, you know, tomorrow for breakfast. And hopefully we will. But we really never know. And when we can surrender into that amount of unknowing, that's when awareness just becomes so tangible. It's not the right word, but it really becomes so accessible, so trustworthy, so much the refuge. These words are too solid, but the refuge we live from, rather than defining ourselves in relation to experience. Just this opening into the unknown. And in doing that, we see that without even trying, as Manindraji would say, when we have the commitment to sit and walk, to just be present, without looking for anything special, without trying to push our sankaras in some certain way, All the beauty and all the sorrow of the world, all the pain and all the joy of the world arise, feed into each other. And just connecting with the pain connects us with the joy. Connecting with one person suffering connects us with the joy of all beings. And we see that, as John Muir said, I find if I touch anything, it's connected to everything else in the universe. Trying to shut out this particular pain because I need to be with that particular good thing is actually denying the fact that this particular scary thing is the key to liberation in this moment, the key to happiness, the key to compassion. So I just want to close with a poem. I read it a lot because I like it a lot. Because it, uh, to me, in a very humble way expresses this sense of, by resistance, we create separation that isn't there. And by simple connection with just what's there, it opens into the universe. It's a Mary Oliver poem. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there. Washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. See, she's running away here. Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings. Rivers are pleasant, and of course, trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first, we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird, I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life. And I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen. But maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? And of course it isn't. Neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth. The way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. So let's just sit for a moment. May the beneficial energies of our sincere practice together be joined with the beneficial energies of the three times, past, present, and future. And may these energies be shared with all beings everywhere so that our practice becomes a cause for the happiness and the awakening of ourselves and of all other beings everywhere.